0: Scheduling is the method by which work is assigned to resources to complete that work. At the operating system level, this can mean scheduling of threads and processes. At the data center level, this can mean scheduling Hadoop jobs or other workflows that require the orchestration of a network of computers. Adrian Cockcroft has worked on scheduling at Sun Microsystems, eBay, and Netflix, And in each of these environments, the nature of what was being scheduled was different. But the goals of the scheduling algorithms were similar. Adrian is well known for helping bring Netflix onto Amazon Web Services. And I recommend watching the numerous YouTube videos of Adrian talking about that transformation at Netflix. This was one of the first big companies to move onto Amazon Web Services. So it was one of the interesting first cloud computing migrations. Adrian Cockcroft is a partner with Battery Ventures, and before that, he was a cloud architect at Netflix. Adrian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi there. So today we're talking about schedulers, and scheduling is a canonical topic of computer science. So let's start the conversation by exploring the fundamentals of schedulers. What is a scheduler?
1: So a scheduler is some software that allocates resources to something that needs to get done. And there are many, you know, it's a long history of this, it goes back to the beginning of computer science. And we keep sort of reinventing the same things over and over again, to some extent, and then we keep applying the similar algorithms to different objects, basically, or different entities that need to be scheduled.
0: And what is the problem that we're solving over and over again? Why do we need to keep reinventing the idea of a scheduler with the same algorithms?
1: There's actually multiple things you're solving for, and this is why there isn't one scheduling algorithm. You might want to run more efficiently. You might want to run with lower latency. You might want to get something done in the most efficient way possible or a series of things. You might want to get the individual things to finish quickly. You might want them to be scheduled in a way that's fair to people and shares out the uh, capacity to people in a, in a according to um, some policy you've got. There's also how much you want to we, uh, work for availability. You know, if if something goes wrong, what do you want to do? How do you want to recover from it? So there's lots of different possible things you're optimizing for, and that's why there are lots of different scheduling algorithms in the literature, basically.
0: You're talking here about the different goals that a scheduler can have and different goals manifest in different strategies for how the scheduler tries to achieve that goal. What are the different strategies that map to these different goals that you've talked about?
1: So if you, um, Let's just say, I mean, it's actually probably better to talk about different types of schedulers first, because then it can get a bit more concrete, the things we're scheduling. If we go back in history, what we're trying to schedule is a piece of work that needs doing, a program that needs to run. And the most sort of common thing that people run into is an operating system. So you have a bunch of processes that need to run on a computer, And which one's going to run next? So that scheduling algorithm has to pick who runs next. So that's the first step of scheduling. Then when we went to multiprocessor systems, we then had to figure out which CPU to run on. And if everyone was trying to run on the same CPU, when do you choose to switch to a different CPU? And what's the cost of switching versus the cost of staying where you are? And so there's a whole lot of work that was done, particularly in the 1990s, on Uh, Unix systems and on Linux eventually, whereas Linux built its multiprocessor sort of uh, scalability to get the system to scale. So there was a lot of work done on Solaris, for example. Um, If you look up Andrew Tucker, he was one of the key engineers working on this. Uh, There's a paper from 1993 called The Benefits of Cache Cache Affinity Scheduling in Shared Memory Multiprocessors. So that's kind of a summary of what the state of the art was in 93. For as the, you know, we had 20 processor machines and we were trying to figure out which of the 20 CPUs do you run on. So that was one piece of the problem. We then went to networks of machines. So we're looking at load balancers and load balancers are trying to send traffic to the right machine. So that's another scheduling problem. And... Nowadays, we've got workloads, sort of containerized workloads, where we're trying to decide I have a container, where should I run it? Which host should I run it on? And how should I distribute across the system? So, all of these are examples of schedulers, and they all sort of have the same underlying principles that, that apply to them.
0: Mm. So, how do the schedulers on a single machine? differ from the schedulers that are being used to manage resources across a cluster of
1: machines? I think the main difference is, that, is the availability dimension. If you're trying to schedule a, let's say you've got you know a bunch of services, a bunch of, con- it's just like the container example. So it's sort of most current. I've got a bunch of containers which um, are providing a service If I happen to schedule them all in the same container host and that container host fails, I've lost my service. What I want to do is spread them out over multiple hosts. You might want those hosts to be spread out over multiple data centers or multiple availability zones or multiple regions, but still have them be a scheduled entity from the point of view of of distributing the work to them. So that's something that really only applies to distributed system scheduling. Whereas if you look at an operating system scheduler, basically the whole machine tends to fail as a unit. All of those CPUs will mostly, most of the time they're treated as they're either up or down. There's a few cases where you might potentially take a CPU out of service if it seems to be getting bad, but that's kind of a corner case.
0: A scheduler can have these different goals and you know, we we're touching on how they might have different strategies to achieve those goals we can prioritize things like throughput or response time, or we can maximize CPU fairness, or like you said, with um, the the multi-machine system, we might be prioritizing availability. Could you give some examples of applications or workload types that might exemplify what different type of scheduler strategies we want to be using for that given application?
1: Um let's see, so let's say you're processing um, sort of streaming analytics kind of things. You have a stream of work coming in, you're processing it, and you're just moving it on, right? You've got compute resources required, some AWIO of iO needed to do it. That's an example where you could potentially restart that piece of. If you lost one of the chunks of work, you can restart it, right? If you look at the way Hadoop works, if Hadoop loses a chunk of the work, it just restarts it somewhere else. So you've got systems out there that are restartable chunks of work. You just care about throughput, right? So you'd want a throughput scheduler. You want to pack everything in. Um, you want to have everything as closely tight um, located as possible. You don't want to distribute the track this the um, the work across lots of data centers, because that adds network latency and will naturally slow you down. So in that case, you want to optimize for throughput. And you probably want to optimize for having similar size chunks of work put on the same system. There's a principles of queuing theory start to apply, where if you mix long-running jobs and short-running jobs in the same scheduling system, the long-running jobs tend to starve the short-running jobs. Like or the short running jobs crowd out the long running jobs and the system tends to oscillate in some interesting ways. So, you, so there's a bunch of things where you might want to create different work cues. Um, you see this in daily life. If you go to the grocery store and you have a little basket with three things in it, or you have a big, you know, cart with a hundred things in it, there's a different line so that the, the, the people with baskets don't get clogged up with the people that have a lot more work to do. Mm.
0: So, to talk more about the timeless concepts of schedulers, I would love to give some more context to the listeners about some different scheduler projects that you have been involved in. And the first that we could talk about is the scheduler within Solaris, which is an operating system developed by Sun Microsystems. When you were working on Solaris what aspects of computing were changing and how did that affect how you were architecting the scheduler?
1: So when I first started, um, I was working from, at Sun. I was using Sun machines in the 1980s. I joined Sun in 1988. We had single processor machines. Uh, a few years later, we finally got some four processor machines and the operating system sort of started roughly figuring out what to do. And then in 1993, uh, we launched a tw- um, an eight processor and a 20 processor machine in an environment where most of the applications and most of the operating system structures were really at that point tuned for sort of one to four CPUs. And one of the projects I was involved in was trying to scale Solaris and the workloads on Solaris onto those 20 processor machines. We had, we they you know, I worked there, we got... I was in California, we actually got one of the 20 processor machines in our lab. We just got every application we could find, fired it up on it, tried to make it scale, and um, filed bugs and pushed back on people. One of the things that came out of that was that it turns out that the scheduler was not working well for certain types of workloads. And so we got some improvements made to the regular schedulers. But it also became apparent that one of the fundamental problems we had was that the the a process wasn't the right unit of scheduling there was generally a workload was several processes was a group of things um, and on a time sharing system serving multiple p- people or multiple customers i mean maybe login time sharing or web services time sharing really is the same kind of thing if you're mixing workloads then you have to have some higher level thing and I was involved in the in the project at Sun where we basically created a fair share scheduler where you could say this department or team or application gets a share of, you know, say, 40% of the machine and the other this other application gets 60% of the machine. And if there was idle time, they would just be unconstrained. But if they started competing for resources, the shares would go to, you know, the shares would sort of kick in and start slowing down one of the, uh, workloads. So it wasn't uh, taking over and inflicting its, um, sort of noisy neighbor kind of activities on, on its, um, on its neighbors.
0: What were the customer needs and the types of workloads that people needed to run on these Solaris computers?
1: Um, this in the mid nineties was the early days of web workloads. So we had some people running large scale web servers on this. What was large scale at the time? Um, some of the biggest, uh, web servers, at one point, you know, Sun dot com was in the top 10 web servers in the world very briefly at the early days of the web. Not that it was a particularly interesting website, but, um, it was interesting from the point of view of trying to figure out how to tune a machine to take a reasonable amount of traffic. For this brand new workload, what we saw though was that a large proportion of what was moving to that platform at the time was database workloads, which were moving off of mini computers and mainframes, and and then there were new database workloads, and the the combination at the time of Oracle and Solaris was happening a lot. So we saw lots of rollouts of large scale uh, databases. and Oracle's a multi-process system. It's got lots and lots of um, it keeps the machine really busy. It uses lots of memory, uses lots of threads and processes. and tuning for that workload was, was one of the big things that we worked on through that period. Mm.
0: So you know, you talked about how these large—the fact that you know you're working with these large numbers of CPUs—made you rethink how to do scheduling what were some of the fundamental concepts that had to be rethought about scheduling when you move to these, you know, more these, these machines with a larger number of CPUs?
1: The main thing is that there's, um, you know, there's a scientific principle called hysteresis, right? Which means that you, if you are doing something in a certain way, it's sort of sticky and, Basically, if you're running on a CPU, you're warm in its cache. You're running on that CPU. The most efficient place to run next time you need to run is where you were running before because there is data stored in the local caches for that CPU. After a little while, if somebody else is running on the CPU, it it, push, it evicts you from the cache, and then you get to run somewhere else. So there's this whole principle of trying to model how sticky a cache should be and the cache affinity protocols for trying to figure out where to run things. And that's still, that applies in all types of, all types of schedulers. There's usually a, a, a like if you're looking at something like AWS Lambda, for example, which is a, you know, a very high frequency scheduler for, um, container like workloads. If you make two requests to a Lambda function, it will probably wants to run them on the same machine because we already loaded all of the code to run that function on that underlying machine. If you send it enough traffic, you eventually overload that machine and it fires up an additional machine somewhere, which is going to so now you have two machines that are capable of running it. And at some point you need to, maybe if the traffic drops back again, you retire one of those machines and concentrate the traffic again. So there's a whole series of scheduling decisions being made for serverless architectures, which are in fact, somewhat similar to the sort of CPU level scheduling that you do in a, in a multiprocessor machine
0: that term cache affinity is that what does the affinity refer to is it that you want the cache you want the requests to have an affinity for the cache or what could you explain that term more
1: sure you have so a cache is just a store of data that you might want to use again and there's two types of of, of affinity to think about or, or locality to think about uh, there's, they're called temporal locality and spatial locality. Temporal locality means if you use something, you might want to use it again soon. So you want to stick it around. You know, Let's say, I mean, just to take like a human example, let's say you're working on your car and you've got a box full of tools on one side of the garage and you're underneath the car, you know, take, removing the exhaust pipe or something like that. You have to keep getting out and going, getting different types of wrenches. Eventually, under the car, there's a big pile of the right type of wrenches that are for that piece of work, right? You know, and those are there because it's a pain in the neck to keep getting out and going and getting them from further away, right? So you're building a cache of the things you need right now to solve that problem, right? Hmm. So that's one type of locality. I'm going to need it again really soon. The other one is uh, spatial um, locality, which means if I get a thing, I will get similar things that are around it because I'll probably need them soon, right? If you go out and get a, a an attempt, you know, one wrench, you're like, you know, I'm going to grab a handful of wrenches that are similar sizes because I'm probably going to need them at some point as well, even though I don't need them now. So, you, so when you instead of returning the one thing you wanted, you return a bundle of things that includes it, but includes things that are similar. It's just the way, right? So that kind of thing is—it's you're, you're taking advantage of the fact that like things tend to clump together.
0: In the serverless example, is are you mostly? I guess is is, is it mostly a matter of temporal locality? Because in, in my understanding of this, the AWS Lambda, you don't have much of a sense of the spatial uh, dimension, or I don't know. Maybe you could fill me in if you're talking about temporal locality and spatial locality, or just temporal locality
1: um the way i well if you fetch the entire container you know you're fetching everything even though you're only starting to execute one piece of it so um th- in that sense there's some spatial locality right if okay. you load right if you load if you loaded just a piece of the container at a time it would load more quickly right if you had a really large application you think you want to run just pieces of it you don't load the whole thing in all one go so that would be you've got to decide what's your chunk size and how much bundling do you want to do. So what you're really trying to do here is bundle together a series of small requests into a larger request, which is more efficient. And maybe you grab the whole thing. But if the whole thing is big, then maybe you want to, you want to grab a piece of it. So that would be the spatial aspect. And for something like Lambda, it maybe doesn't matter so much. Um, for other workloads, there are certainly cases where it, where it makes sense. Um, like if you in fact grab a cache line, a line out of a database, a row out of a database, you might gather everything in that row, even though you only wanted one piece of it, and store that row in a, a memcache or a Redis for fast access to the other members of that that field, right? So that that row, other fields in that row, so that you know row level caching is assuming temp, is assuming spatial locality, and that yeah, but most of the time for lambda it, it's a temporal thing. You think yeah, I'm going to call this again soon, so I'll keep it sticking around.
0: To spur us a little further down the line of history, you've also worked on the scheduler for the system that is now called the Univa Grid Engine, or Univa, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced. Yeah. This is a scheduler for high-performance computing. What kinds of workloads are run on a high-performance computing cluster, and how does that affect how the scheduler is built?
1: That's uh, The history there is that at some point, I think in the late 90s, Sun bought a company, um, that had, I think they were called, I guess I forget the name of the company, but they had this um, high-performance computing scheduler for scheduling compute jobs across large numbers of machines for solving large engineering problems. And and that was product was called Grid Engine. It was actually open-sourced at some point. And uh, the, the role I had in the early 2000s at Sun, I was the uh, architect for the High Performance Computing Group. And one of the products that we had was the grid engine scheduler. So I spent some time with that team, helping them to, to work on the product roadmap and, and integrate it with various other things. So that's my sort of involvement in that product. Um, there was some interesting things there because if you're trying to, say, schedule a job which is calculating tomorrow's weather, it's no good if it takes a week. Right? In fact, there's a deadline that this data is not useful after a certain point in time. So one of the interesting things that the, the grid engine scheduler has is a deadline scheduler. I right? can say so this job needs to be finished by this time and there's all these jobs coming in from all different people and they all have different deadlines and maybe some of them don't have deadlines. So you come in and you figure out, okay, it's getting close to the deadline, the priority of things that are close to the deadline gets higher and higher and you have to have some idea how long it's going to take to 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 do this work so typically works well for repeated jobs if you know you have th- a 3 hour job which is going to calculate tomorrow's weather and it has to be finished by 10 p.m so that you can publish the results before tomorrow you know that's the kind of work where you have a deadline there's a bunch of examples of that sort of in in, in other areas but it's a type of schedule i haven't yet seen in the sort of container scheduling space because we're still mostly looking at throughput and uh, availability oriented schedulers.
0: When you're imposing a deadline on a problem, like if you're thinking about calculating the weather, I think of weather calculation as this NP complete problem that you can't ever, or I mean, with it, with enough information, you can't ever get to an exact answer. You're always asymptoting towards the best answer you can get. And it sounds like the deadline is the amount of the amount of work you're going to put into it, at the, the the how close you're getting to that asymptote. Is that accurate?
1: Um, I mean, there's many different types of models. So the the typically, if you've got a bunch of fresh data coming in every day, you have you know roughly how much new data is going to come in, and then you're typically doing an iterative solver, which will just do a number of iterations, and if you give it more iterations, it gets more accurate. But after a while, you're getting into diminishing returns, right. So quite often, yes, you, if given more data, you could get a better result. Given more time, you could get a better result. But you typically say, you know, I'm going to run this for a certain period of time, and you know, it's good, the the thing's going to solve. And, it, and the other thing is, quite often there are multiple runs, so you do parametric modeling where you give each mod, each model run has slightly different parameters. And you're trying to figure out what your ensemble result would be. Do you see what I mean? If you're like, what if this value was 0.2 or 0.3 or 0.4? Well, I'll run a, a model with all of the parameters at these different levels as separate jobs. So you're running a whole lot of different models. And then you're trying to understand from that the variation in your output and seeing how sensitive it is to that particular input. So there's a number of cases where there's just a huge amount of stuff to done, to be done. But given that there's lots of other things happening on these systems, what you care about is that some of the work you're trying to get done. You just need to get three hours of compute time between in the next 10 hours, but with this deadline. And you don't really care whether it happens early or later, as long as it's done by this time. So that's, that's the, kind of, the kind of way I think about that. You'll see there's many applications for this, but that's the... It's a canonical sort of example that sort of makes sense for me.
0: Hmm. So, what uh, what was the time frame of when you were working on the Univa Grid Engine?
1: Um, early two thousands, and okay. the, the, the product was later spun out of Sun. Um, Sun was later bought by Oracle, um, and uh, or Univa or um ended up acquiring the product and some of the team, and now have that as a as a product that they've been. Um still developing for this high performance computing space. There are several other products in this space that do high performance computing, um, scheduling of large compute jobs. And there are some different characteristics there. Quite often these jobs are parallel algorithms where the algorithm the code is a distributed algorithm, and you have to schedule, say, a hundred nodes, that all have to be scheduled together and they're going to be working cooperatively on solving something A kind of some sense like a MapReduce job in in hadoop is probably the nearest equivalent people would mostly be probably be familiar with
0: okay well let's move closer to the present and talk some about modern schedulers now that we have some historical context You worked at Netflix for several years. You helped bring the company into the cloud on AWS. Netflix has a wide variety of workloads. Some of them need to happen immediately, like serving a movie to someone. But other jobs are less time sensitive, like a machine learning job that would rank every comedy movie. There's plenty of other machine learning jobs. What is Netflix's strategy for how to schedule different workloads on a cluster?
1: I think I should probably do one intervening, discuss one intervening step before we get to Netflix. And I should also point out I left Netflix two and a half years ago. So I can talk about what they were doing then and a little bit about what I've seen them doing more recently. But there's a step in between, which I I left Sun in 2004. I went to work at eBay. And what eBay was running at the time was uh, many thousands of machines and they were using load balancers to route traffic to those machines and then with databases behind them so all the persistent storage was in the database um there was a execution layer you know a web application layer which ran the ebay workload and there were you know hundreds or thousands of machines all handling the traffic and the scheduling algorithm here is actually inside the load balancer and we see today there are many you know Commercial load balancers from people, um, people like F5, and for the hardware type. And there's things like Nginx for software load balancers, and you know, H uh, a HAProxy. There's a bunch of different things. And on AWS, you might have the ELB, the uh, Easy 2 Load Balancer, so Elastic Load Balancer. So. What that thing is doing is trying to figure out how to share traffic across a series of machines so that they all have roughly the same amount of load. And there's a bunch of algorithms there for picking which machine gets what work. You can do round robin where you just say, I'm just going to put them in a loop and give each one to the next one, each piece of work to the next one. But quite often you find that a particular machine will end up a bit overloaded if you do that. The workload isn't necessarily evenly balanced, so there's a. You could look at how much work a machine is doing by counting the number of connections it's currently holding, and so that's called the least connection scheduler, where you try to figure out the system that appears to have the le- the fewest number of connections. And then there's uh, weighting, so you can say I put, I want some machines might be faster machines than others, so I want to give them more weight in the algorithm. So weighted least connections is, is a common scheduling algorithm that you'd find. These things get relatively sophisticated. Um, it's There are a number of interesting pathological sort of things that can happen in this, where particularly in the presence of failures, you can sort of end up sending all your traffic to a machine, which seems to be processing everything really fast because it's just crashing every time you send it a request, for example. <laughs> Um, it's called black hole routing, basically. Or, uh, all your traffic goes into this black hole and everything fails. So there's a number of cases where you want to actually uh, have health checks in there to make sure that everything seems to be working okay. And quite often you put limits to make sure you don't sort of suddenly do something strange while the system is going through transients. So that that so, was something. Yeah.
0: So, so coming back to the idea of goals, the goal of... Uh, The scheduling at the load balancer level that you encountered at eBay was fairness, fairness among different machines. And fairness was an abstraction of many different aspects of allocation among those different machines.
1: Yeah, you're really looking at trying to spread the workload evenly. You've got all these machines, you want to keep them all roughly evenly busy. You don't want to create hotspots where one machine gets overloaded and is slow. You want to quickly identify any machine that's failed or struggling or in the middle of a garbage collect and stops responding or something like that and stop sending it traffic. And you want to be able to uh, roll out new code in ways which are typically controlled by the load balancer. So, for example, canary testing, you have a an extra machine that has some new piece of code on it. You want to send a small amount of traffic to it using a small weight and put it in the in the load balancer and then see if it looks okay, give it a bit more traffic. If it looks good, then replace all of the other machines with um, the news, new code. So that, that kind of way of walking software into production gradually can be automated. So automated canary testing is kind of a, a current topic that people are looking at. Hmm.
0: Okay. So moving towards Netflix, do you want sure. to talk about how the, how your, your impression of scheduling changed going from eBay to Netflix?
1: Yeah. So I, I left eBay in 2007 and joined Netflix and initially Netflix's architecture was extremely similar To eBay. It was a Java application. It was much smaller scale than eBay. And one of the reasons at the time that Netflix was hiring people like me was because we had the experience of scale and they were trying to bring in talent and people with experience, basically. They were trying to bulk up their engineering. Uh, pool of people that had scaled stuff and knew how things work. So a few of us from eBay ended up at Netflix. The the offices are about five ten miles apart. So it's one of those things. If you don't know the Bay Area, they're both in the South Bay and they're relatively close together. So it was a fairly easy transition for a lot of people to go up the road and steal a few more people from eBay anytime we needed somebody that had done work at scale in Java and this kind of environment. So Initially, you've got a bunch of hardware load balancers. I think they were Netgears in this case, um, sending traffic in a data center to a bunch of machines. And we'd figured out the processes for rolling out software. When we started looking at, um, I said there was anything particular. That was really just like a scaled down version of what eBay was doing. It's a very common pattern. Then, when we went to, uh, we started looking at the. The cloud transition. We basically picked up the the load balancer that uh, that comes with e, with E C two the A L B, and we use that. Now that integrates with the thing that Amazon has called an autoscale group, and that's effectively the the first level of um, scheduling uh, of, for resource scheduling underneath, and that's really. You can use, it's, in some senses, it's a feedback mechanism for deciding how many machines you should have. That's the auto-scaling part. But it's also an, a, a way to create a cluster of machines that all run from the same machine image, and you can scale them up and down. So unlike in the data centers where we had a fixed amount of hardware, and we were trying to balance the traffic across them, in this case, we no longer have a fixed amount of hardware. We can scale the, the number of machines up and down underneath a load balancer. Right.
0: So does that I guess does that fundamentally change the the thoughts about about scheduling? because it sounds like at eBay you had to focus more on rolling your own uh, scheduling at the load balancer level, but it sounds like maybe with the ELBs, Amazon just just takes care of that for you. I think, to well, what degree is that true?
1: Well, with a with a Netgear or an F five, they have a number of options for this. You don't roll your own. You basically have to pick which scheduling algorithm you want in the load balancer. But it's it's all you know they're built in. You, you don't write typically write code and put it in there. Um, so the difference here, though, is that we now have to pick how many machines we want to schedule behind it, right? and we're looking at the how the the auto scale group has options to say which zone how many zones are in there so if you go to say us east and there are i think five zones a b c d e and you say i want this auto scale group to deploy into a b and c right so now i'm going to have as every time it adds a new machine it will balance them across the a b and c zones so think of those as separate data centers and the, one of the things the autoscaler group is doing is maintaining that balance for you so that you don't end up with all your machines in one zone. So now we're getting to sort of the availability scheduling uh, characteristics, right, that we were talking about earlier. So it's managing that availability for you. If a zone breaks for some reason, you know, there have been power outages or, or software failures in a zone, you still have two-thirds of your systems left and you have to route all the traffic away from the failed zone. So the load balancer would be configured to send traffic to all three zones. If there's a major failure, you want to turn off traffic to that zone and stop deploying things to that zone and maybe bulk up the number of machines in the remaining two zones. So there's all of those kinds of activities are things that over time, Netflix has developed code and automation for managing evacuating a zone, deploying, you know deploying across zones and uh, managing the traffic levels and the number of machines you need.
0: Over the years, Netflix has developed a lots of expertise in machine learning and there's lots of machine learning jobs that you want to run and lots of other types of jobs that you want to run. Um, can you talk about what you learned about scheduling in terms of production workloads versus the you know, less, um, you know, custom time sensitive, uh, machine learning type of jobs.
1: Sure. The, the way I think about this is if you're in the request path of a customer who will notice if something's going to fail, you're sort of front end where you're, you're the, you're behind the front end, you're a request processing, right? And your job is to get the request, reliably return something in a short enough period of time that whoever asked you for it doesn't time out. Because if you get a time out there, then a TV set will put up a message saying hey, Netflix is unhappy today or the little spinning thing will go on too long. And somebody will basically go, you know what, I'm going to just you know drop out of this and go pick a different, you know, push a different button on my Apple TV and watch something else. Right. So that kind of thing um you want to be responsive and you want to be reliable. Now, that means you have a time limit on how much work you can do. You can only do so much personalization algorithm in a fraction of a second. And for a long time, Netflix did what it could do in that fraction of a second. But we started to develop more and more algorithms that required more and more processing. So the architecture now that they've got, and they've been talking about this recently, think of a huge bank of right? Memory memory caches. And On one side of that bank is um, request processing. And whenever it wants to know the personalized recommendations for a customer, it looks in D, And most of the time, there is a pre-calculated set of recommendations in there. It picks them up, massages them a bit, and returns them. If it doesn't see anything there, because maybe it's a brand new customer that just logged in for the first time, there's some different algorithms that try to figure out how to bootstrap and do a decent job as you start up. The other side behind that bank of, of memcaches is something, is, is an entire environment that is not availability critical, right? What it's doing is it's it's picking up a trigger. So let's say you looked at a page of movies and didn't pick one. That is a trigger. The fact you, did, you looked at them and didn't pick one is actually an input to the algorithm. If you clicked on one and read its uh, you know, synopsis in detail, that's a trigger. You expressed some interest. If you started watching it, that's more interest. If you finished watching a whole thing, great, that's a great expense, yeah. And then you rated it at the end and it was near five stars. All of these things are providing inputs to the algorithm. So you pick all of these inputs and you sort of feed it in and you say, well, all the other people that look like you That haven't watched this movie maybe we should recommend this movie to them so there's all those kinds of things going on in the back end which are cross-referencing everything that everyone watches so that's the nature of the personalization algorithm system so what you're doing is that you have this thing that is basically iterating like i mentioned the kind of like the weather weather calculations you get these these solvers that gradually get better and better if you give them more time Uh, but then there's no perfect answer the recommendation algorithm it's better if you give it more time, Um, but there's sort of a reasonable amount of time to spend on coming up with an answer, and you save that answer. As new information comes in, the system will schedule a job which will go and recalculate things and get a little bit better, and that result will end up getting saved in the memory cache, and the next request will pick it up if it happens to get there in time. You see Mm -hmm. what I mean? So the the fact you watched something will take a little while to ripple into the system, but Probably by the time you finish watching a show, um, the fact you've, that you've once watched that show or you've been watching that show is probably already baked into the system so that the next thing it shows you will take that into account. Because this can all happen in seconds or maybe minutes at the most, right? And you're watching shows that take, you know, tens of minutes typically.
0: Sure. That's a great example. Um so uh, about a year ago, Netflix open sourced a project called Fenzo, and you were not at Netflix for this period of time. So I don't know whether how to what degree you know about Fenzo, but reading the article about it gave me some insight into some of the general issues around scheduling that Netflix considers. And the, the two main motivations for developing a new framework around scheduling were to achieve Scheduling optimizations and to be able to auto scale the cluster based on usage and just talking about these two main motivations for scheduling for building a scheduling framework, I think can bring us closer to an understanding. Um, so what kinds of scheduling optimizations at a high level? What kinds of scheduling optimizations does Netflix's set of workloads require?
1: Yeah, there's been some talk more recently about the Titus work that Andrew Spiker has been working on. Um, The situation they have is that they are optimizing for running on a public cloud where if you stop using a machine, you stop paying for it. The difference if you're running in your own on-prem environment is if you stop using a machine, it's its idle, mostly. Maybe you can schedule something else for it, but you don't stop paying for it, you've already paid for it. So, there's a lot of optimizations that Netflix cares about, which is to have just enough machines to run everything they need to run, but not to have any more. Going back to the autoscaler, there's actually an intervening project they came up with called Scryer, which is a predictive autoscaler, Scryer is a fortune teller. It basically looks at the patterns over the last week and tries to figure out for the next 24 hours how many, what is the minimum number of machines this, autosca- this autoscaler is going to need? And it predictively forward allocates the capacity it thinks it's going to need for about an hour, you know, up to an hour in, in the future. So that, using that, they were able to manage their autoscalers so that they were ver- very highly utilized systems, but they always had enough capacity. So that was one level of, of, of sort of optimization for these backend systems the systems that Fenzo was originally developed for they were running these personalization algorithms and people are coming up with ideas they were basically wanted to containerize an idea because an idea might be coded in python it might be coded in r it might be in c++ they had all different kinds of people it might be a uh, you know a neural network thing that runs on the gpu of a, of a you know, those kinds of things, they're very specifically coded. So you've got all these different algorithm types and all these different people working on trying to make the algorithms better, and they wanted a way to package those in a very lightweight way and deploy them into their system. So Fenzo kind of came out of this work. It was more batch-oriented for driving the, uh, finding a more a lighter-weight way for developers to interact with things that they wanted to run, and to wrap, and Docker in particular, all the dependencies wrap in. If you've got a particular version of Python, you don't have to go and install it on every machine where you might want to run. It's inside the package. And you can, you know, the next container over has a different version of Python. You don't care, right? So that that is what was driving them in that time as I understood it. Mm. But then what they're running there is a two-level scheduler. They have a certain amount of work that's coming in that is a bunch of containers need to be run and then they have a bunch of machines underneath. They want to deploy the containers on top and schedule them, but they also want to take the the machines underneath and scale those machines up and down. And this is something that the container schedulers that are basically optimized for on-premise usage are not trying to build on top of an elastic substrate, right? You do swarm init on all of your swarm machines, uh, you know, swarm init, you hook them all up and you have a collection of swarm machines Adding and shrinking the number of swarm machines isn't really a function of swarm at this point. Kubernetes, as well, it has all kinds of things like load balancing and, and uh, pushing things in and out, but it's not really optimized for um, the number of machines underneath to come and go, right? So, this is why. The scheduler that uh, Netflix has been working on is a customized thing running on Mesos, which has, it's a bit more pluggable. Mesos is a framework for building schedulers, and you can do more with it in terms of changing it. So they've built a layered system, which manages the underlying resources very efficiently, and then schedules containers into the top of that. Mm. So
0: it's, it's basically like a domain-specific scheduler.
1: It's a scheduler for the two things that Netflix cares about more than most people, which is very large scale. Andrew's running this on hundreds of of uh, machines where each machine has 250 gig of RAM. So he's running on a very large, very large number of containers and they want to auto scale aggressively and optimize and integrate into the AWS framework specifically. So those two features meant that they didn't see somebody else that was trying to solve that specific problem. Most of the other container schedulers were lower scale, or they were trying to sort of um, peanut butter over the differences between on-prem and cloud, and you end up with sort of a lowest common denominator baseline, and then add the features back in. If you look at Kubernetes, for example, it duplicates some of the AWS features like security groups. Uh, and some of the networking features, networking allocations. So you end up, if you run Kubernetes on AWS, with these entities, th- these capabilities appear twice in your stack. And then you have to decide: do I want to ignore the fact that AWS knows how to do this and just manage it at Kubernetes level, or do I want to try and figure out how to coordinate the two together? And that 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 was one of the reasons why uh, building a a A a new plugin, basically, for Mesos was actually a cleaner way of solving that problem, right?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, you had some contrast between Mesos and Kubernetes and Swarm, and um, you touched on Amazon there. Uh, And I've been doing some shows where I'm trying to compare these different schedulers. And some listeners have given me feedback that the coverage of these schedulers has been more like a TechCrunch article and less like a scientific assessment. So I'm trying to get a better understanding of the things that I should actually be zooming in on in these different frameworks to be able to assess the tradeoffs in a more serious way what what are the aspects of these different schedulers that i should focus on as time goes on because obviously we're going to be dealing with these things for a long time and i don't want to just be papering over um and just talking in fashionable terms
1: yeah um so if you think about operating system schedulers we don't talk about those anymore They just come with the operating system they just do it people don't worry about them you can actually get in there and tweak them and maybe make things slightly better if you know exactly what you're doing however most people just use what it does so when something is new you have to go figure it out it's new in the market people are still trying to figure out what is the features you know we've got bin pack schedulers we've got basically we have a choice between efficiency and availability schedulers I think there should probably be a few more options before it becomes like a complete thing. Like I'd like to see a fair share scheduler, a deadline scheduler type of options across these packages. And then we would like to see the underlying systems be more elastic. So I think everyone is heading towards the full set of features. There's the the idea of also what it was the thing you're scheduling. Is it an individual process? Is it a group of processes? Is it a single container? Is it a pod of containers? So we're seeing... The sort of idea that you want to schedule a group of containers is now spreading out from Kubernetes to, uh, you know, Swarm has the idea now and Mesos has the idea now. So people are starting to get, um, borrow ideas that look good from each other and they're coming together. So these things go through a cycle. Um, And one of the names for these cycles is innovate, leverage, commoditize, right? You start off with people are building brand new things they've never seen before. That's the innovation piece. Eventually. People start borrowing from each other, and you just start picking the one that looks best. And they may be all different, but you're leveraging something that's out there. You don't have to go build your own scheduler anymore because there is a choice of them out there. And eventually it commoditizes and just becomes an invisible feature of the things you use. So what I think is in the public cloud space in particular, it's it's going to commoditize into they just know how to schedule containers, and they have these options, and you have to think about it. And products like ECS from Amazon will eventually add all the features they need to to do what they need to do. And it just won't be worth running another thing yourself on top unless you're trying to do something very special and researchy. And on the, the, the dominant workloads will be catered for by the built-in thing that you kind of get for free without having to think about it. And that will apply to Azure and to Google as well. The, the area where I think that there's actually some interesting competition is what happens on premise and how do the uh, various vendors end up competing and who wins the, the I have bare metal and I want to run something sort of space.
0: So, what about so, so at the level of Fenzo, for example, mm-hmm. do you expect, like, would you know, if we fast forward five years in the future, there's a company like Netflix. Would they have to build their own Fenzo, or is this the type of thing where they could very easily uh, plug in some numbers on uh, a, an Azure console or a AWS console and have a Fenzo available to them?
1: Yeah, I think uh, Fenzo and Titus and things will eventually. All of those things, you won't need to build those in another year or two. They will just come and. Mm-hmm. and you know the relationship between Netflix and AWS is such that Netflix, build, if if Netflix doesn't have what it needs from AWS, it'll build build it, and then they'll say, "Hey, can you f- bake this into your thing?" So the you know the EC, ECS team, the container service team at Amazon, are looking at what Netflix is building and trying to figure out how to include those features in E C S. And E C S is in some senses more integrated into AWS than the other schedulers. For example, it understands about availability zones and cross zone scheduling, which is something that is and uh, it's, it's done it from day one. Whereas most of the other schedulers are just starting to think about uh, federated scheduling. That's a thing that I I saw Kelsey Hightower talking about. He was playing with a new experimental feature in Kubernetes where they're just getting to that. You know, that's a well baked feature in ECS because it's part of the integration with AWS. So you, we're getting. Different people having different capabilities, but I think we'll end up with a very common set of things in that space. So that's, that's, that's one part of your question. There's another area around serverless, and serverless is really a scheduler problem of a different type. And the problem there is you need to schedule something that's extremely short-lived compared to a normal container, and so the overhead of scheduling it is the problem. So if I'm looking at serverless frameworks, the questions I want to know is, what is the overhead? What is the latency and overhead of starting a new thing? Is it tens of milliseconds? Is it hundreds of milliseconds? Is it seconds? Because if it's seconds, you don't want to run something that then takes half a second. You'd need to run something that is taking maybe 10 times longer than the time it takes to start would be the minimum that you'd want to do. You see what I mean?
0: Yes, definitely. And
1: then there's this other point, which is uh, if you're billing for this and you're billing by the individual usage of each thing, what is the overhead of generating that billing record? So, if your system takes, say, you know, the, to process the billing of an event takes about a second of CPU time somewhere in the system, but the event you're billing for is half a second on average. Obviously, your your overhead is too high, right? So this this. As we get into these extremely short-lived systems, um, the the interesting measure that I'd like to know across, you know, if I was doing a, a comparison across uh, Lam- AWS Lambda and uh, Google Cloud Functions and Azure Functions and IBM OpenWhisk is like, what is what are those latencies, and how do they how do they behave when you add when you say have if I'm scheduling ten. One scheduler at a time, I get one kind of latency. If I have a thousand schedule that I need to be scheduled at a time because a burst of work arrived, how long does that take? You know, there's a lot of uh, scalability things in those schedulers, so there's a lot of work to be done in this space. Uh, the IBM option is open source, so that's an interesting one to go look at um, to see how they're solving that problem. But in general, I think there's an interesting area around running. Uh, the serverless systems on premise, the very different challenges from the challenges of building an application on top of one of the serverless things. There's always this sort of divide between how do you build OpenStack, kind of how do you build a cloud, which is the OpenStack problem, versus how do you build applications on a cloud, which is the problem I've mostly focused on in my career.
0: Okay, well, Adrian, I want to respect your time. Thanks for coming on the show. This has been a really, really uh, uh, great conversation for me. It's, It's a pleasure talking to you and um yeah you're, you're welcome on the show any any time if you want to talk about something in particular
1: well you're you do doing this every day which is amazing um you know, it's hard work to keep up with just listening to all these shows <laughs> um definitely appreciate everything you're doing here and um you know i'll see everyone else on on twitter on adrian co adrian co on twitter and um, hopefully just continue the conversation as these things mature
0: sounds good